Hello, and welcome to the Game Audio Hour, a fortnightly podcast where we discuss all things game audio, from creative ideas to the latest techniques, project experiences to audio secrets. Here is where you'll find in-depth coverage and opinions related to game audio. This is episode 245. I am Vince Diamante. Yeah, I'm going to introduce and I'm going to introduce my <laughs> name first instead of saying some little glib thing about what I'm doing like drinking coffee out of a, a coffee mug that is festooned with cute anime boy characters from my wife's fandom days. <laughs> I'll let you it's imagine like what that what that is. <laughs> yeah, it's times like this where I really uh, regret that we're no longer doing video. Oh, it's <laughs> Okay, well, I will try to describe it because these uh Cute Japanese anime boys are hugging various animals. They kind of have various aquatic creatures that they align with. So one of them is hugging a shark. Another one is hugging a penguin. Um, another one is swimming alongside a dolphin. This is an anime about uh, a swim club, a high school swim club. So... <laughs> um, Yes, that is my coffee mug for today, and uh, I've been drinking a whole lot of coffee, so I'm quite caffeinated. Uh, Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing well. As usual, I'm drinking tea, and I'm using the, I think the brand is Mr. Coffee Coffee Mugs, which you can get as a three or four pack on Amazon. And I'm a sucker for these mugs because, now hear me out, I think if a mug is, if you're drinking tea in a very small cup, uh, it's like a traditional teacup. I think it's unsatisfying. Mm. And yet at the same time, if your mug is too big, it suddenly picks on this kind of bathtub gym vibe or it's just not fun anymore. And for me, these particular <laughs> mugs hit that sweet spot of the Goldilocks spot, if you will, of not too big and not too small. So even when I shattered my first set over a period of months by accidentally dropping them on the floor, I went ahead and bought another set. So highly recommended. No, they're not a sponsor, but if they're listening, we're open to talks. Ooh, that, that actually sounds pretty cool. I'm surprised that you went to size. I definitely get that that's important. But when you said Mr. Coffee, I was definitely thinking about the color and the visual aesthetic of Mr. Coffee from the 80s. You know, that very off-white and that sort of very uh, modern block logo that that they had back then. Mr. Yes. Coffee used to be yes. such a huge huge brand back then and now it's just another coffee thing in this new world of coffee that we have post starbucks yeah yeah big coffee seems to really have been shattered and and balkanized into either these small high-end brands that coffee aficionados champion or the the monument of starbucks and the other and pete's and the other uh brands that are tied to a particular establishment yeah kind of like video games i would say uh, you know, back in the 80s, you had your Ataris, your Nintendos, uh, and they controlled everything. Now it's not quite the same world. It's it's individuals in their garages selling directly to you by virtue of having a Steam account and all of that. So it's a, it's a whole different world there in the video game space, I'd say. Yeah, and, and smoothening your already heroic segue is the fact that Steam also feels like it has coffee relevance. So well done. Uh, <laughs> thanks for getting us out of the digressionary pit. But uh, yes, uh, let's talk game music. 
Yeah. Or game uh, audio, I should say. Yeah, game audio is cool. Uh, game music is awesome. I was actually really looking forward to checking out all sorts of new stuff this week because um, if you're listening to this, it is the middle of June, and usually that means there's a lot of events happening and a lot of announcements, often centered around E3, which is which had been going on for more than two decades. But this year, 2023, E3 is no longer the Entertainment Software Association, of which uh, members like uh, Microsoft and Nintendo, all those guys, they would put on E3, not this year. And instead, it's up to various uh, individual companies or smaller individuals like uh, Jeff Keighley putting on things like Summer Games Fest. Or things like uh, Mix, uh, the, the Media Indie Exchange, in order to do what E3 did in the past, which is get the information about these games in the hands and minds and eyes of all the other people that are out there, retailers that care about putting games on store shelves, or increasingly the end consumer that wants to just consume games, that wants to buy them on their Steam accounts or purchase them directly or or whatever. So it's kind of a different world right now that we are in. I actually usually am doing something around E3, uh, maybe helping out on a game that I'm working on as part of the promo. Maybe I'll actually do a little bit of stuff where I'm hanging out with press and leading them through the game that I've worked on. Uh, that was the plan for me yesterday, except it didn't happen because the events that I was supposed to be part of, or rather that my game, uh, the game that I worked on, rather, Demon Skull, was supposed to be part of, that event was shut down because the venue that they had chosen in the Arts District of Los Angeles was not up to code. <laughs> so the fire Ooh. department came in while all of these indie studios were setting up their boots. There were about 40 or 50 of these guys setting up. Fire department said, sorry, we're shutting you down. You cannot run. Yikes. And uh, that was <sighs> kind of surreal. So jarring, that must have been. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, and this was uh, not the worst thing for me and my cohort and the game that we were going to present there. So we're working on Demon School. The guys that were there, uh, we we're all from California. Some of us a little further, like NorCal. Uh, my friend Brandon had actually flown down. So he was rather frustrated because this was their primary thing. Uh, he wanted to show off the game at this specific event, knowing that there would be press coming in through this thing for the next five, six hours. And unfortunately... No longer the case. But it, knowing that's even worse for some of these other people that were flowing in from much further, you know, from across the country or maybe from out of the country even. And, uh, you know, if this was their only thing that they were planning on in order to drum up a little bit of excitement for their game, that would be that would be really bad, really just hellish and, and in terms of the, the the mental toil and what can you do in order to salvage uh, something for drumming up uh, support for your game in the game space where you're dealing with margins, you're constantly weighing what 
is the worth of this particular event versus this event? Should I actually spend energy and time and money on doing things at this venue rather than this other venue or maybe just purely a virtual thing? Uh, because everything is all over the place right now. It's not E3 anymore. It's do I want to do something at Jeff Keighley's Summer Games Fest if the opportunity is out there? Do I want to hang out with a streamer and book 15 to 30 minutes of their time and, and let them talk about the game with their audience or hang out with other indie developers at something like The Mix? And uh, just to be clear, this wasn't The Mix's fault. Uh, they haven't, uh, they've been doing this event for many years now, uh, including back when E3 was still a thing. But man, these LA venues, they need to get their act together. The, the building not up to code, power not up to code. What the heck? There were a lot of disappointed people and quite a few, I would say, rightfully frustrated and angry people there too. And uh, that's what I was dealing with last night. <laughs> wow. I wonder why the inspection happened at the 11th hour. Was that just the luck of timing or do the inspectors typically move in when they uh, are alerted to the presence of a big industry event or did somebody piss off somebody in the city council? Uh, I wonder why uh, such mm -hmm. unfortunate timing. Uh, it might have been a little bit of all of that. Um, so when I mentioned this specific venue, um, I don't think I necessarily need to mention the name right now, but one of my friends who actually works in events, he does things like uh, art installations and fancy visual tech for various uh, companies and artists. Uh, when I mentioned that it was supposed to be at this venue, uh, he said, oh, those guys are flaky as you know, as crap. <laughs> that apparently these guys had a reputation and it was not a good one. <laughs> so um, maybe it was that, you know, they, they just had some repeated offenses. Oh, I think one of my other friends had actually mentioned to me that he heard a fire department official say something along the lines of, uh, man, we're getting tired of slapping these guys on the wrists. So it, mm. You know, if it's multiple offenses, okay. And, you know, certainly it sucks being on the this end of a bad situation, but, you know, there are also the possibilities of much worse outcomes when you're dealing with things like, you know, fire and electrical stuff and a lot of people in an enclosed area. So, okay, you know, I'm not going to blame the the L.A. Fire Department. They're, they're doing their job. Uh, I it's good to play safe when it comes to all these things. I was very, very aware of that while I was watching various staffers and people for the venue or uh, for the event, uh, laying down wires and you know taping things down. And okay, yeah, the, I mean it's a bunch of game developers. We need a lot of power in order to present all of our goods. It does make sense, and I feel like this also serves as a point of appreciation for E3. Uh, even though that that event has had its share of criticism over the years for a number of reasons, uh, from logistical to cultural, the I feel like the mechanics of the convention were, from my point of view, flawless. And the LA Convention Center is is perfectly run. You know, there's I, I've never seen a problem with that venue. It's definitely top tier. Mm -hmm, definitely. Uh, and things that we take for granted 
uh, were handled by the organization running that convention. So there, this might serve as a, uh, a a point of appreciation of the advantages you do get when you consolidate with a large scale industry event and uh, some of the some of the advantages that a such a seasoned large organization brings to the table. Yeah, I think that we're not going to be totally E3-less for uh, an extended period of time. Now, obviously, the big companies like Nintendo especially, they figured out how they can do things direct to the, the customer. But there's all sorts of other things when it comes to E3. Like the original purpose of 3.3 was to get developers and publishers connected with retail. And that's still pretty darn important, even though the, the money is increasingly coming directly from consumers. But retail and marketing and merchandising and brand awareness, those are all still really, really darn important. And E3 is a big part of that. So I think that the ESA um, or maybe some different permutation of these larger companies and maybe mid-sized companies as well, uh, they're going to get their act together and probably try to do something more than the hodgepodge of events and and journalism and marketing that we currently have going on today, which is June 9th and then through the weekend. Uh, probably by the time this episode comes out, we'll have seen pretty much all of what this whole week has had to offer us. But it'll, it'll be fun seeing what's there in the future for our summer marketing of video games. Absolutely. And on the topic of summer industry events, Early June has, of course, always been the traditional date for Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, or WWDC, mm -hmm. uh, the bulk of which are seminars that are developer-focused. They're the place to go to learn from Apple the design guidelines for apps on various platforms, but um, the the opening of which is the infamous WWDC keynote, where Apple will also announce to the world at large new and forthcoming products. And there were two products, or maybe 2.5, this year that I think are of indirect but strong relevance to uh, game audio folks, in that we are all computer-based, and those of us who are freelancers have to uh, put together our own rig, and many of us, not all, but many, will choose the Macintosh platform, which is a long-winded, indirect way of saying there are two new high-end Macs, and I think they're both, for different reasons, exciting for audio people who are responsible for their own computers. The uh, mm. first of which is a refresh of the Mac Studio, which is billed as the middle-of-the-line, um, I think, pro-level Mac, though it doesn't have the, the pro branding. It's understood to be in that middle ground, maybe loosely comparable to the uh, MacBook Air. And uh, towering over that machine, figuratively and literally, is the very long-awaited new Mac Pro. And uh, these are both powered by the same chip, the new, uh, I forget the name of the permutation, it's one of the M2 varieties, but it's the uh, the the version that takes two M2 chips and grafts them together yeah, so you get that ultra. Uh, double the fun. So, yeah, these are very exciting releases, especially to people like me. I have been running on a 2013 Mac Pro, a.k.a. the Trash Can, which has uh, performed 
admirably for a very long period of time and is uh, still quite usable even today. But I am very much looking forward to upgrading my studio uh, once the reviews come out and I can compare the relative merits of these two new products. Uh, what are your thoughts, if any? Well, I did have a gut thought, and it's the gut thought is specifically because of my current situation where I'll just succinctly describe it as I'm getting a little tired of incrementally upgrading my machine, which has basically been my machine since 2017. So, okay, what am I going to do about it? Am I going to get something new? I'm going to get something new. And that's why I decided to go all out and order a Mac Pro. But um, in terms of my overall thoughts, man, it's, it's a little complicated because they definitely presented these two distinct machines. The Mac Pro is a big-ass machine. We're familiar with it because we've seen that cheese grater face and that chassis. It's It's been very stable over the last half decade, um, as well as that cute Mac Studio, which basically looks like a, you know, a, a somewhat taller, fatter Mac Mini, but still very nice and cute and portable and, and solid. Um, they're so distinct, and yet they're so similar because everything when it comes to these modern Mac products is centered around the processor and that whole package there, which defines everything for the computer. That processor has all the stuff that you want that would typically be in separate packages dispersed on the computer motherboard. You don't have a separate bank for memory. You don't have separate chips for controllers. It's all just in that single package. And that same single package is in both the Mac Pro and the Mac Studio. And so even after my gut thought of, oh, I need a new computer, I just kept on thinking, geez, these are still essentially the exact same computer with the exact same power. Uh, despite the drastically different profiles that those two machines strike. Did you have a similar feeling when you were looking at that, or were there other things that you were considering? I was struck by how similar the machines were in terms of their, um, their CPU and their core capabilities. As far as I can tell, the meaningful differences between the two, assuming a comparable configuration in both cases, is that... Uh, on the subtle level, I believe the Mac Pro has a more advanced cooling system. Um, I don't know if that's fans or just something about the layout, but that might mean that it's a quieter machine. It might mean that uh, processors, individual cores might run more efficiently or there might be uh, less heat pollution. Uh, and on the macro level, of course, you have the physicality of the two and the tower configuration of the Mac Pro, which allows for a number of PCIe. Um, expansion cards. Whereas with the Mac Studio, if you want any traditional PCI cards, you'll have to buy a separate enclosure and plug it in via Thunderbolt. Mm -hmm. So you've, you've got the card expansion and you've got the port configuration and maybe uh, the, the cooling system a little bit. There may be a couple of other minor differences, but I think the choice really boils down to how much do you care about expansion cards? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's definitely a lot of people out there in the audio world that use expansion cards still. Um, there are some DSP cards that people still use, uh, but it's definitely far less than it was back in uh, the 2000s when we saw a lot of stuff on PCI Express cards, whether it be Pro Tools or Universal Audio or TC Electronics and, and these things where you had DSP cards, shark chips on PCI and PCI Express cards that you would throw in there in order to get your power for certain plugins or certain processing um, outside of the the well-known VST or that sort of plugin architecture. Uh, but those are really few and far between now. Not as many people are using those DSP cards, but we still do use them for a couple of other things like hard drives now. Um, I... I was recently struck not just by what's going on in the Mac world, but what's going on in computing right now, where SSDs are the power, so to say, or the the performance ability that is currently for sale out there to the end consumer. Having storage and speed has never been more affordable than it is right now. It's totally possible to get two terabytes of the 99th percentile performing SSDs for under a hundred bucks. It's really, really crazy that. Um, and just to be clear, when I say 99th percentile uh, for SSD performance, I'm saying along the lines of seven gigabytes per second of reading and writing which is absolutely insane. It's amazingly, amazingly performant. And that's just stuff that's on the current generation of the PCI Express protocol. Um, There's a new PCI Express V5, which is coming out, and that's going to be double as fast in terms of its ceiling, um, which means SSDs could be even faster in the future. But I was struck by how cheap and performant all this SSD stuff is right now. And Mac Studios, where you have that amazing processor that Apple's got, and you've got this really nice felt desktop profile, this thing that will just sit on your desk and be really quiet, and that Thunderbolt. And the idea that, oh, everything in the SSD world is going to be so cheap and so fast, and it's just going to get faster from here over the next five, 10 years, which is like the typical lifetime of a computer. Like, you know, if you can make it last five years, that's pretty good. You know, 10 years, that's pretty awesome. But that Thunderbolt connection is already slower than the fastest SSDs that you can get right now, which are actually really cheap at under a hundred bucks for two terabytes. And even though I know that I, you know, I'm not sure if I really need to, if I need to go past that Thunderbolt four limit, just the idea that I'm limited by it right now with the current tech that's currently on store shelves, that 
is what made me decide on the Apple page, I am going to get a Mac Pro and not a Mac Studio. Uh, it, storage technology is crazy and wacky, and it is moving at a, a linear pace right now. And I don't want to be limited when I see storage technology get inevitably faster next year, the year after that, and the year after that. You know, what, what do you think about that? The real question in my mind is how much speed, how much bandwidth or throughput do we care about beyond what Thunderbolt 4 is capable of providing? If Thunderbolt 4 is as fast as you really care about, or if there are other factors in the speed of your system that limit the effective use of your SSD, it may not matter, and the Mac Studio, perhaps tricked out with a, an external enclosure for some PCI cards, might be sufficient. But as you point out, the speed of an internally mounted, I don't know what the term is, but in an internally fixtured SSD port on the Mac Pro is not going to have that Thunderbolt limitation. And I think like right now, the, the theoretical speed is an order of magnitude greater than what Thunderbolt is capable of. So yeah. for me, the question is, how much do I need that speed? How much would I use it? Uh, if I've got four or let's say two SSDs in a two-slot PCI enclosure going through one Thunderbolt cord, is that a is that a meaningful limit, or will I, practically speaking, never notice the difference? And I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, mm -hmm. I respect the desire to play conservatively and say I'm going to future-proof myself and not limit myself to Thunderbolt four. I think that's a valid choice. I'm not yet sure what I'm going to do, and I think I'm going to wait for the first round of uh, in-depth reviews uh, and examinations of system performance, and then, as you did, combine it with some attempt to predict the future to decide which of those two I'm going to get. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think those early reviews are going to be really great, but I also feel like for my own needs as a musician— I don't know if I will have made the right choice until a couple years into the future, quite honestly. Um, and and I would also say that I don't think that the wrong choice here would be a bad choice. Um, it's a matter of, uh, you know, maybe I might have spent more than I would have expected. Or maybe if it's on the flip side, uh, you know, if I choose, say, a Mac Studio instead of a Mac Pro, maybe there are certain aspects of music tech that might be closed off to me. And uh, let me ex let me sort of expound on that a bit. My own personal journey when it came to my relationship with my musical instruments and the tech that I'm using in order to produce my music on computer, uh, I feel like I was confronted with a fork in the road where I had to decide whether I was going to pursue tech that was processor or memory intensive. And I've always been interested in the processor side of things. Um, so there are lots of libraries out there. You go to things like orchestral tools or Spitfire and you know, all these big behemoths of sampling, um, you know, Vienna, East-West, 
They've been doing sampling for literally decades now, and they have libraries of not gigabytes, but terabytes of data that they have created over the years that is going to be given to us as working musicians as gigabytes and gigabytes of libraries for our orchestral section. Hey, here is 50 gigabytes of strings. Here are 100 gigabytes of, of winds, whatever. And back in the 2000s even, I thought eventually we're going to do more elegant things, right? Instead of just having all this data out there, maybe there will be more things that are happening algorithmically or, um, mm. you know, um, let's see, improvements in various types of synthesis, uh, physical modeling, additive synthesis. Um, and those are going to create the realism and usability and overall production quality that I was looking towards. Now, at the time, in the mid-2000s, I had to make a choice. Do I want to go for processors or do I want to go for storage and RAM? And at the time, I thought, okay, I'll go for processors. And that led me to various tools over the years that have not been on the right side of history. Uh, <laughs> like, no one cares about sinful orchestra right now. Um, S-Y-N-F-U-L. Uh, but it was really interesting to me how it was doing this additive synthesis plus wavetable formant thing that could do interesting things with musical instrument lines, especially during runs, where it actually they, – they talk about having something along the lines of a lookup table for gestures, and it would – basically recreate how the, the formants would sort of align with the little bit of sample data and the additive synthesis that it was doing in order to create a legato string line or a legato flute line, which is kind of one of those things that's typically very hard to convey realistically. Uh, so it was really interesting. No one cared about it. Because at the time, you could do all sorts of stuff if you had 10, 20, 30 gigabytes of data to actually devote to your sample library. And, and nowadays, okay, 10 gigabytes is that's, – that's piddly. That, that's that's uh, kids' stuff. Now we're dealing with hundreds of gigabytes. So I think part of my decision here is kind of a reaction to my own personal experience over the last few decades, where I've been so excited by what people were doing and trying to circumvent the needs of having so much audio data to deal with and looking at what people were doing with the algorithms. Now I'm like, I want to do things in a more traditional way now, or at least have <laughs> the ability to do that, seeing how amazing these other tools sound. But of course, you need storage and stuff like Vienna. They're, they sound awesome. Part of what makes Vienna sound awesome is not just, oh, uh, it's very well recorded. You have all of these different permutations of articulations and dynamics and all that. They're also streaming lots and lots of microphones. It's something like a dozen different microphone positions for all of that stuff. Um, 
So you know, you've got your decatries, you got your close, you've got your outriggers, you've got mics behind the conductor, you've got mics further in the orchestra, you've got mics everywhere. And so it's making me think that right now, in terms of what I'm seeing in the future, you've got more and more of these mic positions that are being used. And so that means that the memory requirement is going to be you know, linear escalation. Uh, but maybe there's also something else further than that because there's other tech that people are trying to develop in order to take advantage of what SSDs offer. Um, so another thing is that SSDs in and of themselves are not pure storage. They're actually little computers in and of themselves that do stuff to data in order to ostensibly optimized storage, but they do other things with them. And we're, we kind of see some hints of that with things on the bleeding edge, stuff like people who are making uh, cryptocurrencies that are based not on compute, on CPUs and GPUs, but actually on storage. And I, I can't say that I actually know what the hell is going on with it or that I'm even a fan of that because I personally think cryptocurrency is just kind of weird. I, I don't want to dive into that. <laughs> but uh, the fact that th there are people that are interested in storage as computing in and of itself and what are things that can be done with that, that makes me want to make sure that I'm not limited by mm. storage interfaces in the immediate future. And so I look at that Mac Studio and think, oh, this is amazing. That Mac Studio will totally knock my orchestral template out of the park and, and back again. It will be great. But, you know, storage is interesting. Storage is so powerful and it's moving. And I, do, I just don't want to be limited by that as I see it move off in the near future. I didn't, I didn't quite know where you were going with that, but you brought it home at the end. So it was a worthwhile journey uh, on that long train of thought. Uh, yes, I, I agree. You know, there's always this trade-off because on one hand, if you get the Mac Pro, you're disintermediating the computer and getting rid of the necessity of an external thing holding cards with SSDs and then another cable. Um, on the other hand, suppose some new SSD or some new format comes out for cards or some new port comes out in a year or two years, uh, if you had bought a machine like the Mac Studio that you figured you'd replace in five or six years, as opposed to the Mac Pro that you figure you'll replace in eight or nine years, um, you might be on a slower moving ship. You might be committed to a device for a longer period of time. And even though it will function very well during that long period of time, you may miss out on what's coming out in a year or two or five years, unless you want to sell your device and go through mm -hmm. that hassle. So there is always this, this gamble. On the other hand, uh, I will turn around and argue the case for the Mac Pro on a very practical level. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm coming from the experience of having had the 2013 Mac, the, the infamous trash can, and that had no internal expansion. So in effect, it was a, a tiny version of the uh, the I guess it was it was a bigger version of the Mac Studio concept, but uh, my enclosure, my my soundproof chamber in which that computer lives, is jammed with 
drive enclosures and mm. it is a mass of cables and things are connected to other things and there's power cords everywhere. And thankfully it's all in this cubby that I don't have to look at. But when you, when your system has complexity, there's a subtle but ongoing process of maintenance that's involved. Things break, things act strangely, things need to be replaced. I remember one afternoon driving down to Santa Fe Springs so I could, in a panicked rush, bring a malfunctioning uh, PCI enclosure to the manufacturers to swap it on the same day because I was mm. in the middle of a project and I just could not wait the duration of shipping. Fortunately, they were sort of close and I only lost an afternoon. But, you know, that was an afternoon I lost. It would have been two or three or four days had they not been nearby. And then there's this attendant stress of, oh, are my SSDs not working? Do I have to test each one to see where the problem is and, and kind of sleuth the fact that, oh, it's the actual enclosure is not working. It's not the cable. You don't ever want to go through that process. All of us can probably handle it with cool-headedness and efficiency, but it's just one more thing to think about. Mm -hmm. And it might be one more thing to think about times the number of external things you are plugging into that Mac Studio. If you've got everything neat and clean inside your Mac, then you're getting rid of two points of pain, the enclosure and the cable and maybe even the power supply of the external enclosure. And it doesn't sound like much. It sounds like maybe I'm being a little finicky, but on a practical level, when you're in the middle of a project, there's a real value to simplicity and things working. So that is, I think, a subtle but powerful argument for going the Mac Pro route. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, those Mac Studios are amazing. And actually, there are some really wonderful enclosures that various companies have made that that meld so, so perfectly with the, with the Mac Studio, where, oh, it's just another box about the exact length and width of the Mac Studio, and you just put it underneath there, and it's a nice little platform for the Mac Studio itself. But like you said, yeah, there's that cable, there's that power, there's other things that are probably happening in software to make sure that it's working in a tip-top fashion. And uh, it's another thing to have to deal with versus if you have something that you can just throw in that Mac Pro and it's semi-permanent, it's made to stick in there for the life of the computer. And hopefully the life of the computer is in fact nine, 10 years, <laughs> like your like your trash can. Uh, you know, that that's... That's even better. You know, it's really cool that your Mac Pro has lasted pretty much a decade now. Uh, do you feel... Hey, almost a decade. Yeah. Uh, I'm starting to get to the point where logic is occasionally crackling when I overload a particular project with a lot of stuff. Uh, so in its final year of life, and only in its final year of life, I'm starting to feel the age of the machine. But until then... Uh, I had no complaints with it. it. It was just a really fast machine, despite all its uh, infamous downsides. Hmm. I, I always liked the Mac Pro. Uh, I totally get that it's not for everyone, that it's in some ways kind of in between our current idea of a Mac Studio and a Mac Pro. I mean, you can you could replace the processor and upgrade the memory on your trash can. You know, otherwise... There are those uh, Thunderbolts and USBs on the back. That That's really about it. Uh, and I, I also really appreciated just 
what the Mac Pro was like to move around, the idea that the ventilation on top was a built-in handle for it. I always thought that was a great sort of elegant bit of design there. It, it is nice. In practical terms, if you're buying a desktop computer, you're not typically going to want to move it. And uh, I think I never really moved my Mac Pro out of its its home, except occasionally to, to clean the environs it was in. Um, oh, another point, probably the smallest and silliest point, uh, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. As Mac people, or Vince, in your case, uh, impending Mac people, we do care about aesthetics. Uh, that's part of what draws us to the Mac experience. And having... Uh, if you buy the Mac Studio with the expectation that you're going to have this beautiful little thing on your desk, remember that the beauty fades quickly as cables start to sprout from the front and the back. And uh, that the, the picture that you'll see in all Apple's marketing materials will not reflect the visual reality of your machine once you've tricked it out with um, expansions and cables and all of the other ugly realities of a computer. Whereas the Mac Pro is just going to be this imposing but attractive obelisk and it's just going to have a power cable and i guess if you plug in a traditional like usb style keyboard i guess that could be another uh, point of entry but probably it's just going to be the power cable and from a pretty picture point of view i i think the the mac pro wins out mm -hmm. yeah definitely I'm really hoping that I can get anything close to the near decade that you've experienced with your Mac Pro. Um, all of my machines have always been in that five-year window. If I could last 10 years, that would be awesome. <laughs> um, it, I, I wonder, has your Mac Pro been the longest lived a bit of computing in your production workflow? Oh, absolutely. Hmm. I should add that this is not entirely by choice. I was getting impatient for a successor to the Mac Pro for a long time, and I didn't think that the iMac Pro was it. Uh, when Apple had a semi-private press event where they announced the iMac Pro, um, I believe, unless I'm conflating two events in my memory, uh, I believe it was presented in the spirit of a stopgap. Uh, they did launch the Intel Mac Pro, but I believe it was, I believe like the, the Apple Silicon was pretty quickly on the heels of that thing. Yeah. And at the time, I got the sense that something was coming that was going to make that Intel Mac Pro not a great investment. And I decided to wait. Uh, given my own druthers, I would have upgraded in 2019, which is, I think, when the Intel Mac Pro came out. Is that right? That feels right. 2019. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... The trash can has lasted. I would not have voluntarily given it that tour of duty for so long, but I felt like something was coming that I wanted to wait for. And this last week has proven to be the week where that happened. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. You still haven't pulled the trigger on any particular Mac though, right? No, honestly, and listening to myself talk during the course of this episode has nudged me a little bit in the Mac Pro direction. But at this point, it could go either way. I'm going to wait for a couple of reviews just to get a, a few perspectives. Mm -hmm. I think for our listeners, 
you should regard your computer as an investment. You you want to err on the side of giving yourself the power that you want because future you is going to be grateful when you don't have to service the machine or upgrade it or reboot because an accumulation of memory leaks has made the thing uh, screech to a halt and you're starting to feel the speed difference between that external enclosure and the internal cards. Uh, so within the realm of what is financially reasonable for you, I think it's best to err on the side of getting a nicer machine. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with that. As someone that has not listened to that advice for many years, ostensibly because I enjoy tinkering. Um, yeah, I think that is, in fact, really good advice there, Mike. Indeed. We've, we've been talking about this for a while. Why don't we relax a little bit? And uh, have we done any conspicuous consumption lately? Is there anything that you've been playing or watching that has been really fun and exciting? I have become, I've always been a bit addicted to the um, marvelous Mrs. Mizell, uh TV show on mm. Amazon Prime. I think it's Amazon Prime, not Netflix. And uh, normally the music in that show is heavily drawing from um, period music, source music, and the like. But there was a particular musical accomplishment that struck me in the last episode that I saw. And I'll try to describe it obliquely so that it's not spoilery, but uh, Midge Mazel is Maisel. I think it's Maisel. She's she's at a industry event. Huh. I topically tied it into a part of the, what we were talking about in the show. She's at an industry <laughs> event, and there's a kind of, I guess this reflects how industry events were in the 60s, or it might be a fanciful exaggeration of that, but there is a bespoke musical that is created to extol the virtues of privatized waste collection. The premise being like when the city garbage trucks aren't enough, you want to hire our company to haul away your waste and it's possibly of questionable legality. And they create this stage musical extolling the virtues of it. And it is hysterical. It exists in this place that's like not quite parody, but way more silly than real life. And I think it's meant to mock the way that corporate self-celebration can often sound so over the top in its uh, oblivious cheesiness that it becomes unintentional comedy. And the show runs with that and makes it intentional comedy. But it, honestly, it's one of the funniest musical numbers I've seen in a long time. And the, the, you know, the orchestration arrangement feels just spot on of the era. So that wow. is a great show. And the musical aspect of that particular episode, I think, is of, of interest to everyone. That sounds I awesome. I <laughs> and and yeah, that does strike me as even though I haven't really watched the show, um, you know the the sort of glowing extolling of virtues that that happens in sort of that uh, absurd, ridiculous way in in that time in that era is. I'm already just imagining just how fantastically fun that would be to watch and 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 just recall all those things. Uh, of course, that is for an era that I did not live in. You know, back in the you know early and mid 20th century, uh, when we had such wonderful things as of uh, well, what's this? There's something stuck in my brain of the Fleischmann's Yeast Hour. Um, <laughs> You know, and that was at one time the most popular radio show. <laughs> um, 
broadcast in America. Uh, but yeah, uh, hearing that this musical was is there as part of the show sounds fantastic. Uh, it is a it is a delightful show. Um, how about yourself? What have you been consuming recently? Let's see. Um, I've been hearing a lot of people ask me why I haven't gotten into Tears of the Kingdom yet. Um, actually, have you checked that out yet? The the new Zelda game. I am toying with the idea of buying a Switch just to play that because mm-hmm. I read a compelling review that said it's worth doing just that. And uh, this is a case where even if I don't love it as much as everybody else does, I, I feel like this is part of the zeitgeist. So I may, and this might tie into which Mac I choose because that will have a, a financial impact on my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I may just go that direction. How about yourself? I still haven't touched it, but like you, uh, there's some exciting stuff that I hear and see uh, all those viral clips of, uh, you know, fun little physical contraptions because Tears of the Kingdom is not just an open world game, but it's also a crafting game in the way that Breath of the Wild wasn't. But uh, I haven't been playing that game. And instead, I have been playing as well as extolling the virtues of this very interesting 3D puzzle game called Humanity. And uh, I was actually recently hanging out with other audio people asking, hey, have you played Humanity yet? Have you played Humanity yet? I was at a party of about 40 people, about 90% of whom were actually working in games and audio, and they did not play Humanity which struck me as really weird. I know I am a little biased because I don't just like, but I love the output of one certain Tetsuya Mizuguchi, who is a game designer that was responsible for helming projects like um, Res and um, Tetris Effect and Luminous and all these games that had a very strong audio component to it. Um, Res is, of course, that rail shooter where everything happens on beat. And so it feels like you're not just surviving a level, you're also contributing to this big EDM sound space that immerses you in the world. And all of his games have that strong audio-visual connection. And so there's a new game that just came out the same weekend of Tears of the Kingdom, And it's a really interesting game with interesting mechanics. You play as this little Shiba Inu dog that is trying to direct a stream of humans, of hundreds and thousands of humans that are walking on a grid into the light. And you have to lead them in a sort of um, kind of lemmings-like way where you have to issue commands for them to turn and jump and fly at certain places in order to successfully navigate the 3D world that you're presented with. Um, And throughout it, you're presented with really cool music, Uh, not the driving uh, dance music of Rez, probably more along the lines of the very smooth uh, trance music that was in other things that he's worked on, like uh, Luminous and Medios and, and stuff like that. Uh, but there's a really cool connection, again, between the audio and the visual that's happening there. Even though this game is probably the most thinking, abstract, puzzly game that he's brought out there um, 
in his uh, in his oeuvre. So Humanity, it's a really good game. It came out the same weekend as Tears of the Kingdom, so that's kind of working against it. But I think it's actually a really fantastic, fantastic game. And if you're into game audio, I think it's definitely a must-play. Huh, that does sound fun. Uh, and that, is that for Switch as well, or is that uh, PS5? It's not for Switch, but it is for uh, PlayStation, and it's on Steam as well. So there's a, there's a couple different ways that you can play that game now. Yep, Very highly cool. recommended. When you described it, the similarity to to the Lemmings game mechanic did did strike me just before you said that. So that that does sound like kind of a fun approach. Yeah, I, I think it's really cool. It's been a while since I've seen um, a puzzle game, especially one that would be considered like a, a high profile, high tech type of puzzle game. You know, most puzzle games these days are you know cute little indie affairs. Uh, this one, not so much. Actually, it even supports VR. If you have a PlayStation VR 2 or even the old PlayStation VR 1 headset for PlayStation 4, uh, hmm. it it's really neat and it's worthwhile because these uh, 3D spaces that you're playing with, you're like rotating and trying to look through spaces and find holes in the geometry that that people can jump through in order to get elsewhere in the space. It's It's really quite cool. So yes, again, highly recommended. Very cool. Yeah. So I think this was an hour. I guess we should call it an episode. This was episode 245 of the Game Audio Hour. If you liked what you heard, feel free to support us by subscribing to us at your podcast purveyor of choice and leaving us a review to keep us in the forefront of the algorithm. You can also follow us on Twitter at Game Audio Hour, where we post notices about future episodes, as well as try to support some other fun and positive voices out there in the Twitterverse. And of course, the easy way to do all of this without having to remember any of what I just said this last minute is to go to GameAudioHour.com. So go ahead and do that while I wait for my new computer to show up in the mail. <laughs> Bye. See y'all. Yeah, July 11th. It can't come soon enough. I'm really excited. I may have, have talked myself in the Mac Pro during this episode because I was just listening to all my arguments and thinking, huh, that does 